Oh, welcome everybody. It's a great pleasure to um, introduce Kathy Lyons, who's our uh, speaker today. Um, she's uh, an assistant professor in psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine here. Um, and she's also a very active and engaged member of uh, our cancer control program. Um, it's, uh, it, it's always a pleasure to interact with her. Um, she um, came here with a, um, a degree in occupational therapy that she received in 1993, and then she got a Doctor of Science um, degree in therapeutic studies from Boston University in 2003. Um, and she's uh, worked at Dartmouth on uh, different in interdisciplinary research um, uh, teams and applications conducting studies in areas of palliative care and cancer rehabilitation. Uh, in her research, she develops and tests interventions that directly target uh, disabilities um, and foster full participation in meaningful activities uh, despite challenges that can be created uh, by cancer and its treatment. Uh, she's currently funded by an ACS mentored uh, uh, research scholar grant, so uh, she's extremely pleased to have received that and to have um, had ongoing um, career development through that. And uh, she, her, um, her presentation today will be uh, related to the research that she received from that. Um, and before that, she also received um, an ACS institutional grant um, earlier that was entitled Functional and Emotional Health of Cancer Survivors. And so uh, we're delighted to host the ACS uh, members that are here. Um, you guys play a huge role in um, allowing us to develop our research and in uh, facilitating a, a better patient care. It's, it's really a wonderful thing that you do in, in, um, in um, volunteering and helping the the um, community to, to do a better job with treatment and, and in research. So thank you. Uh, um, also, I, I should uh, welcome the people that are uh, participating by web. And um, Kathy uh, told me she has no uh, conflicts of in interest. She's not going to be talking about any investigational drugs. And um, thank you very much, Kathy. Yeah, no one wants that. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Um, and it really is quite a privilege to be here on this particular day when there are so many people from the American Cancer Society here. So thank you for asking me to do this, Chris and Linda and everyone. Um, the obligatory slide of no, I am an open book and don't have any disclosures to discuss. Uh, but I do want to add my own personal thank you. I've been to a lot of events for the American Cancer Society over the past four years. I've met many people, and I always find the events very inspiring and energizing and, frankly, very humbling. Um, the work that you do and the passion and the dedication that you bring to your jobs is, is very moving to see. And so many of us here at the Cancer Center have had the good fortune to be able to benefit from the work that you do that allows us to do the work that we love to do. So thank you so much for your time and for being here. Um, as Chris mentioned, I have a Career Development Award from the American Cancer Society that we're finishing up. Um, most people know that's a training grant, so it allows you to do some extra education, some intensive mentoring, 
and, um, and then a very modest research project as a way to practice what you're learning. And so I'm going to tell you what I've been talking about and thinking about and working on for the past couple of years. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the nature of disability in the context of cancer, uh, the current paradigm of cancer rehabilitation nowadays, nowadays. And I'll tell you hot off the presses our first little glance about what happened in our study and, and what we did. Um, so Chris mentioned my background's in occupational therapy. And so the question that guides my profession is, are you able to do the activities you want and need to be able to do in life despite any challenge that comes from aging or physical or mental illness? And when the answer is no, we want to be involved and see if we can change that. And when I say activities, I'm referring to a lot of wide different amount of activities, from the things you do to take care of your body, like on the bottom right, you can see getting dressed, cooking, preparing meals, eating, um, to the things you do for active leisure on the upper right, the things you do to take care of your body and give yourself energy, um, in the middle of the things you do for work, uh, the things you do for sedentary leisure that keep your mind sharp and active and focused. Um, I'm interested in your parenting activities. There's gardening. There's also on the lower bottom right, spiritual activities. All of those things are um, fair game for what I want to do in occupational therapy, that we want to help people find ways to do these things despite any challenges that arise. It gets a little tricky, of course, when you're talking about lots of different activities and how you possibly could measure them. And it's not necessarily easy. Uh, what we have to do is kind of come at it from a number of different levels. Um, but here's an idea of, on the left side, the different types of aspects of activities that we can measure. Um, you can look at someone's activity level, um, so the overall amount of activity they do, and you can see accelerometers, you know, think of Fitbits, things like that, all the rage these days. Those will measure activity level in the sense that they measure movement. So if that's all that you care about is how much someone moves, there's a fairly good way to measure that. Uh, but we also use things like time diaries, asking people to prospectively write what they do or report what they did, um, look back over the week and report them. Um, you can do look at people's location, where activities happen. Um, there's a lot of wonderful work here in the Cancer Center, people looking at geospatial analysis. Um, you can look at activity patterns. Do people have a good balance of activities they're doing in their life? Um, but the things I'm going to talk about are the, are the bottom two, when we talk about activity performance and satisfaction. That's really where my interests lie and what we try to, uh, I'll be telling you about as we go on. Um, if we look at activity performance, how people are able to do their activities, um, we can either observe that, we can watch someone and see how their bodies move and if they sequence tasks appropriately and how much assistance they need. Um, and that's really important if there's an issue like someone has a stroke or if you have dementia and, and you really have to watch someone and observe what happened. In the context of cancer, we're more often talking about this other one, self-reported disability, where we ask people to talk to us about how often do you do activities, how difficult is it for you, how much assistance do you need, what type of assistance, is it a person or is it a piece of equipment, and how limited do you feel in your activities. And then I'm also interested in the bottom construct of how satisfied are you with your activities, which is akin, it's a little bit of um, an aspect of quality of life. You know, we think about functional well-being. Are you able to do the activities that are important to you and that make life worth living to you? So those are the two aspects I'm going to talk about today. Um, and I mentioned this word disability, so I'll give you a little overview, a, a quick definition of the term. Um, Nagi was a sociologist who did work in the 60s, updated here. I took a model of his from the 90s, um, where he talked about disability as the gap 
between capacity and demand. So the gap between what I want to be able to do and what I can do. And the idea is in, in rehabilitation, we try to narrow that gap. We try to make there more of an overlap between what people can do and what they want to do. So you could be, the logical question is, how big a problem is this in cancer? Uh, what's the prevalence of disability in cancer? And what type of disability are we talking about? So let me just give a little bit of overview with that. Um, this is an older study. I pulled it. It's from the 19, 1997. And I pulled it because it was one of the first studies to really look at the independent effect of cancer on disability. And what they did is they took a representative sample of Medicare beneficiaries, those, and they compared people who had a diagnosis of cancer any time in their history to those who had no diagnosis of cancer. And they found that the people with cancer had significantly higher rates of disability than those who had never had cancer. And so you can see the rates on the left side are activities of daily living, ADLs. That's basic things we do to you know, take care of our bodies, move our bodies, walking, bathing. So you can see that almost half of people with cancer reported that they had um, a limitation, and, and a pretty big limitation. It was defined by, do you have a lot of disability or difficulty, or are you unable to do one or more activities of daily living? And 48% of the people with cancer survivors said yes, and 40% of people without cancer said yes. Again, older adults, a Medicare sample. Um, and so they looked at, so that was ADLs, and then over on the right side, instrumental activities of daily living are more the things we do outside in the community, shopping, taking care of our homes. Um, and almost half of cancer survivors, 49%, had difficulty doing one or more instrumental activities of daily living. And you can see that it's things like heavy housework, shopping, light housework. And when they did a regression where they tried to look at what they found that certain cancers predicted um, disability after you controlled for things like age, race, income, gender, education, insurance, and other comorbidities. So they said this is an independent predictor of people who had lung, cervical, or uterine cancer, or breast carcinomas, um, had more ADL, uh, were predictors of ADL limitations, and on the right side you can see ovarian, prostate, cervical, and uterine carcinomas predicted instrumental activities of daily living. So this is an older study. It's very gross. It doesn't help you figure out what's causing it. Is it the cancer? Is it the treatment? Uh, it doesn't really distinguish between, well, let's look really at people with breast cancer and understand this. Um, it just gives a general uh, idea that there might be a problem here. Um, if you say, well, treatment's changed a lot, so maybe that's changed. Um, I pulled another study. This is uh, actually a good friend of mine down in University of North North Carolina, where she was. Um, down there, they do a comprehensive geriatric assessment as part of their treatment for older adults. They use the geriatric assessment to help them tailor cancer treatment. So 529 older adults got this geriatric assessment as part of their cancer treatment. And they found that 65% had at least one functional deficit, so trouble with an activity of daily living or mobility. 41% had at least two. 14% had a deficit in their social activities. 35% had a limitation in instrumental activities of daily living. Those are taking care of your home, shopping, we talked about. 
And 30% of them were unable to complete the timed up and go test, which is you start in a chair, you get up, you walk 10 feet, you turn around, you sit back in the chair. If you can't do that, um, they use a threshold. There are different thresholds people use, but they use one of 14 seconds. If it took you longer than that, um, it's thought to be a risk for falls and balance problems. Um, and I'll get back to this a little bit later. Interestingly, they had this comprehensive assessment where they could figure out these functional problems to help them look at performance status and tailor the treatment, but only 9% of people with identified problems ever got to rehabilitation, either physical therapy or occupational therapy. So the, I, I would say the argument is these days it's still a bit of an issue. Um, and, but so here's where the jury's out. You know, is the disability caused by cancer or its treatment? Is it cancer-related disability? That we don't have good data about. Um, very recently, in this year, I found three different articles, uh, particularly Andrea Cheville is a physiatrist at the Mayo Clinic, and she's done a lot of exciting work in cancer rehabilitation, and she's really starting to try to tease out what is, what is going on with the disablement process, and how do we know who needs to get to rehabilitation, who will resolve on their own, what's the nature of the disability that we see in cancer. Um, but at the moment, the jury's still out. Um, there's the research suggests it's multifactorial. Some disability comes from the disease, some comes from the treatment. Um, I just told you there was a study that showed there's an independent effect of cancer that, on disability, um, but there's more research that suggests that it's comorbidities, the, the, the diseases we bring into the context when we walk into the cancer center, that explain more of the variation in disability than the disease or the stage or the treatment that you're getting. Um, but basically, at this moment in time, it's best to think of it as multifactorial, and these things interact with each other because we don't have a lot of great science to help us figure out what's really going on. And so the scientist in me says, well, that is a problem, and we really should do something about that. It's really important to understand the disablement process and the etiology. Um, but in my heart, I'm a clinician. And like many clinicians in the room, uh, we can't necessarily wait for all the information to come in before we decide it's time to know enough to help someone. And so my interest is a little bit more weighted towards the intervention side and what can we do to help people in the meantime while we're gathering information that we need to know. Um, and so you could say, so then the argument becomes, you know, is this really the time and place to be dealing with disability and rehabilitation when someone's undergoing cancer treatment? Um, maybe this is something that we should let people get through treatment and let the primary care providers deal with um, that right now might not be the right time, especially if it's not cancer-related disability. Maybe it's not something we need to worry about here in the cancer center. So is it appropriate to actually identify and treat disability? My answer is yes, and you will see if I've convinced you in an hour. Um, you know, regardless of where the disability comes from, whether it's coming from the treatment that we're doing or not, we know that disability can affect a person's ability to actually tolerate or complete their cancer treatment. And if there's something modifiable there that we can do to reduce disability that allows them to adhere to treatment, I think that's a pretty important thing. Um, and here's my example. So this is my mom. Uh, my mom was diagnosed with early stage lung cancer last year. My mom is quite disabled. Uh, she has spinal stenosis in her neck and in her lower back. Um, so long before this diagnosis, she had a lot of problems with mobility. Uh, she's quite frail. Little insults 
really take her body a long time to recover from. So when she was diagnosed with lung cancer and we were going in, we met with the oncologist and then we went for a surgical consult, I really didn't know what they were gonna say and I wouldn't have been surprised if they said she wasn't really a candidate for surgery um, or if they did the surgery and she ended up in a nursing home because she was teetering. She, she had some issues. Uh, so we had the good fortune actually to be referred to our own Dr. David Finley here. Um, and when he saw her, uh, he actually said, you know, before we decide whether you're eligible for this surgery, you need to increase your aerobic capacity so that when I take out part of your lung, hopefully you're not gonna be any worse off than you are now. So we gotta get you exercising so that you can increase your aerobic capacity. Well, given her disability, her back pain, uh, the fact she has a lot of mobility issues, uh, she couldn't do that on her own. We got a referral to physical therapy. She did end up exercising. She did increase her aerobic capacity. Um, and she actually had the surgery and went home after about five days uh, back to independent living without needing to go to a rehab facility or a skilled nursing facility. Um, and she still most often keeps up with her exercise today. Um, so I think that's an example of, she probably might not have been appropriate for treatment and the treatment certainly would have interacted with her, her disability in a difficult, uh, different way uh, if we hadn't had a chance to intervene um, before she had the surgery. Okay, so enter the concept of cancer rehabilitation. Uh, so cancer rehabilitation has been defined as helping a person uh, with the activities they're interested in doing, but obtain the maximum functioning physically, socially, psychologically, and vocationally within whatever limits are imposed by the disease and its treatment. And the current state now, people talk about impairment-driven cancer rehabilitation. Um, the first author on this is Julie Silver. She's a physiatrist down at Harvard. I feel like she's the one who coined this term, um, talking about, and the idea is, we need to look for physical impairments the same way we screen for distress and pain and depressive symptoms. If we can identify who has physical impairments, um, because they're sometimes subtle and hard to know, if we can look for things, uh, if we can find fatigue and cognitive issues and lymphedema and triage people and get them to rehabilitation, then we'll be able to treat those things and uh, improve people's ability to tolerate treatment and, and hopefully their quality of life and their ability to function. Um, so that's sort of the state of the art, what people talk about. Uh, if you go to any cancer rehabilitation conference, you will have workshops about treating lymphedema, treating fatigue, you know, finding symptoms and impairments and dealing with them. Um, and what it's sort of, happened at the moment is we, we have a little bit of a, a lopsided evidence base. I showed you this, this, this model of disability. Um, on the left side is capacity. So, you know, in a simplistic model, which we know is not exactly true, we have pathology that creates impairments like fatigue that lead to functional limitations. And the idea is if we can improve capacity, we can close, make this box bigger and close the gap. And so um, cancer rehabilitation, the evidence base is small, but growing. Uh, but what we have is really evidence over here. We know a lot more about how to treat impairments and treat lymphedema than we do this side of the equation. 
and really focusing on demand and changing the environment and changing the activity to help close that gap. Um, you, in the case of my mom, I mean, this worked well. She really had done all she could to try to make her environment and simplify her activities. She really did need to improve her capacity. Um, so you could say, well, you know, I mean, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. If we address impairments, I mean, that'll take care of it, right? The rest will come along. And I do think that's true. I think sometimes, I'd even say often, that's the case. Um, but I want to tell you about uh, an example to help you think that sometimes it's not enough. It's necessary but not sufficient to make all the change we want to make with disability, I believe. We'll see if I can convince you. Um, we did a study a couple of years ago uh, designed by Mark Hagel, my psychology mentor, um, where we were working with women with breast cancer who are under the age of 60. We did a telephone-delivered intervention, and this is a pseudonym for a woman who was in our study. She was 53 years old. She had stage 2 breast cancer. She had chemotherapy and radiation. And it left her with many impairments. Many were, from her perspective, and logically appeared to be related to cancer. She had lymphedema. She had peripheral neuropathy, a lot of fatigue. She had some poor core strength. She had depressive symptoms that had been treated with an antidepressant. She had some cognitive issues that were treated with cognitive behavioral therapy. And she, was seeing, she had seen physical therapy to deal with the impairments and physical therapy to deal with some of the functional limitations that led to, because she had troubles with balance and walking and lifting. Um, so she got good care, comprehensive care, to deal with some of the impairments and the limitations that she was experiencing. Um, but when she came into our study, when we talked about what was, you know, how, how are things going for you, in terms of disability, she identified these issues, that she was working part-time as opposed to full-time, which she had worked before her diagnosis. She was an early childhood educator, so she was on restricted duty. She couldn't lift the kids. She couldn't get down on the floor with them. Um, not doing well at work, she said, because she was calling in sick often, not really on top of her game, wasn't organized, doing less with the kids than she wanted to. Um, she was struggling with her home management, house cleaning, and um, specifically she lived in a big house and had been planning to downsize and move, um, but really got slammed with a cancer diagnosis in the middle of it, put that on hold. Um, but now that she was done with treatment and getting better and getting on with her life, she wanted to get back to that so she could downsize and move out of her house. And she said the other thing that bothered her is she wasn't doing the stress reduction techniques that she liked to do. She had stopped doing that ages ago and didn't get it back in her routine. Um, and so what we did on the phone is we talked about, uh, we talked about how to identify and practice modifying manipulating the modifiable aspects of your environment and your activity so that you can do more of what you want. And we taught her how to set behavioral, observable, achievable weekly goals that would build towards her long-term goals of getting back to work full-time and downsizing and getting out of her house. And we did this once a week for six weeks over the telephone so that she had practice of, I'm going to do this this week, try to make it easier, and try to improve and reduce the gap between what I want to do and what I can do that way. And so what she did in the first three sessions, she worked on reestablishing her daily meditation practice, which she did and felt good about. Um, in session two, she focused on getting up to the attic. We talked about uh, she found, so I gave her a structure, but she found the solutions on her own. She figured she would do things like, I'm going to bring up a lawn chair so I can sit in the attic when I have to repack my things. Um, I'm going to set a timer so I don't overdo myself and find myself tired. I'm going to stretch before I go up there. Um, we talked about which part of the attic would be an easy 
place physically and emotionally to deal with the, what she needed to do. That all went well. During session three, she said, that was great. You know what? I'm on the verge of being fired. I have burned out the goodwill of my employer because I was calling in sick, and he wants to talk to me Friday, and I think he's going to put me on probation, if not fire me, and I need, I need to deal with that. So we spent the last three sessions talking about that, finding ways that she could break down her work tasks and find ways that she could, again, weekly break things into manageable chunks so that she could get back to the point where, yes, this is the performance that I'm interested in and that I feel good about. Um, and as a result, she said that she went to the supervisor meeting. We also talked about this is her action plan, how much of that action plan she would share with her boss, what kinds of information she wanted to give him so that he could understand what she was going through and what accommodations she needed. Um, and what she said is that she wasn't put on probation and that her supervisor was thrilled that she came to the meeting with a plan as opposed to an intention to do better and I'll try harder. Um, and she was very happy as she pulled off the, the rest of the week feeling like uh, she had a structure to help her focus on how to make activities a little bit more manageable so that she could build as she's building her endurance and her ability to do things. Um, so that's that's my case to try one of one of many actually that we've had in our studies where people get wonderful attention to impairments and symptoms but there still can be residual disability and the prevailing mindset of if we just help you with your body and your symptoms you'll fix your life um, works well for some people but not for all and so that there is sometimes this residual disability that I feel as a person in rehabilitation it's modifiable disability that there is some progress we can make in this area and so when I was coming to the Career Development Award, when we were applying for the Cancer Center, that was the gap that I was looking at, um, understanding that we have a lot, of, a lot more evidence, although we need more, about how to treat impairments. I was really looking at the disability side of the equation. How can we get some structured, standardized interventions that can demonstrate we can help improve disability? Because I think that um, it's not that we're not necessarily doing it in therapy. People are getting help. But we're definitely not talking about it, we're not documenting it, and we don't have a solid evidence base that says it's worth doing and worth investing time in. So that's what I was coming to the Career Development Award interested in doing. Uh, we had done the earlier work with our breast cancer survivors who were younger than 60. We did uh, some stuff on the phone. So as I wanted to move to this next phase, uh, I wanted to shift my focus to older adults. Uh, and I was interested in, can we do something that doesn't help just one a person with one type of cancer, but can we have one framework that helps us address the needs uh, of people with different types of cancer? Um, and I was interested in doing a home-based intervention, which is the question I get most often, like, wow, that's interesting, and why did you do that? Uh, and so the reason it was important to me is um, we did that work with the older, uh, with the younger, the people younger than 60 on the phone where we would, we would do all this problem solving and teaching and brainstorming and it would be like, okay, good luck. Let me know how it goes next week. And for older adults, knowing that there are more comorbidities, more issues with mobility, they're more likely to have physical problems um, in relation to the cancer diagnosis, I really wanted to have a chance to be able to see them and see what they were doing as opposed to just saying like, okay, yes, you should be going off to do that walk. Good luck with it. I felt it was important to lay some eyes on them, if not lay my hands on them, which, which it wasn't a hands-on intervention. Uh, so that was the first reason. The second reason I thought it was really important to go to people's homes is uh, 
this is a problem we talk about every cancer rehabilitation conference I go to, there's really low uptake of cancer rehab interventions. Um, for people who are in treatment, it's a pretty hard sell to say, oh, there's one more provider we want you to see. Um, we make time for one more appointment. Come back to the clinic, and we're going to make you work a little bit uh, as you're going through this. It's, it's a tough sell. Um, they don't necessarily immediately want to do or want to deal with rehabilitation right now. It's the idea of, I'll deal with that when I'm done dealing with everything else, which may be reasonable. It may make recovery more difficult. It's, it's, we don't know. It's hard to say. Um, and I went to a conference in November, and um, Andrea Cheville from Mayo Clinic was talking about the last RCT she did where a physical therapy clinic-based intervention was part of the, uh, the intervention they were trying, and they could only get a third of their people. The participants in the study who said, yes, I'll do this, only a third of them could come back and do clinic-based physical therapy. So I wanted to eliminate that barrier and get to their homes and make it very easy for them to say, yes, I, I think I'd like to try this. So that was the second reason. And then the third reason is we know that context really affects disability. And I was thinking of their homes as my laboratory to help me really understand where, where we don't have a good sense of the etiology of disability and what's going on. I thought that being out in their homes would give me a really good chance to explore that with them. Uh, so for the award, we talked about uh, a study with three aims. So what I was going to do first is pilot the study with 12 people where we could write up the treatment manual, make sure I was doing the right thing, get it all standardized. Then we were going to start a randomized trial where we'd enroll 60 people into the study, um, half of them usual care, do whatever you would like, normally do. Half of them go into the intervention, which we were calling health through activity, and uh, compare feasibility. Would they enroll? Would they stay in? Are they going to withdraw? Do they want to do the intervention? Do they drop out of the intervention? So how could we, could we enroll and retain people? And then the third aim was to look at, can we, is there any signal that this might help people? A little potential efficacy there. Um, the, third, the third aim is the hardest, because as we talked about with my mentors before, we, as we're designing this, I remember very clearly uh, Greg McHugo saying, you know, Kathy, there's never a good reason to do an underpowered RCT. You're setting yourself up for failure because half of the people won't get the intervention, half will, and you won't have the power to know if it really made a difference or not. Um, and I, I hear that. Um, the only reasons it does make sense to do an underpowered RCT is if you're piloting something and you want to know, will people accept randomization? Will they go into the group that you told them to go to, or will they find their way back into another group? So will they do that? Um, is it possible to maintain blinding? That means that the research assistant that I had calling people to get the outcomes, if she knew what group they were in, that could you know, you could, you could play with the data that way. So we wanted to make sure, yes, we could keep her blind. The participants wouldn't tell her. She wouldn't know. We can look at that. And then it's also somewhat appropriate in this setting, given the state of what we don't know about disability and the disablement process, it's sort of a fair question to know, yeah, I won't be able to do the intervention with those 30 people. But will they get better on their own? I mean, what happens in the absence of treatment? We could be trying to solve a problem that solves itself. 
And so it was a reasonable case. And then the, well, the last thing was when you're proposing a career development award in which you're learning how to do better experiments, if you don't do an experiment, um, it looks a little bit funny. It's a little hard to write. So, so anyways, we went into this doing an underpowered RCT. Um, we went into it saying we wanted, these are the eligibility criteria. We said we wanted to focus on people who I'm, I'm going to say older adults, but I know it's not older. We were just saying adults who are over the age of 65. Uh, we had two different ways that we were testing two different screening methods, mechanisms to, to try to get an idea of who's, who needs this, who's experiencing some form of disability. So we used the Vulnerable Elders Survey, which is sort of a marker of frailty. It asks, can you do your shopping? Can you walk? Can you stoop? Things like that. Um, but then we also use the question, do your health problems interfere with your ability to carry out your social or day-to-day -day activities? Because it's similar. It was used in an epidemiological study. It's similar to the question I showed you in the beginning. That's, that's the people I care about. So that we use those two ways to try to figure out who might need this. Um, and then at the beginning, you can see in black, we were targeting people who are within six months of completion of therapy. But when we did the piloting with those first 12 people, I have a lot of field notes of conversations Peter Kaufman and I had about like, oh, are we finding the right people? I don't know. I don't know if we're doing the right, we're getting the right people in. Let's try to broaden our nets um, because the real purpose is to figure out, is this feasible? Are we on to something? Can we standardize this? Do people want it? Who wants it? So we really broadened our criteria. So we took anyone with any solid or hemological cancer in treatment or done with treatment. And then we also uh, expanded it to look at people who had metastatic breast cancer or metastatic uh, hematological cancer um, to, to really sort of help us. We figured this really helps us with feasibility, explore who needs it. We knew it was going to hurt us at the end uh, with efficacy, but it was all about feasibility. It's the, the primary goal of the study. And we only excluded people who had very gross cognitive impairment um, or had a medical record documentation of a, a severe mental illness that was more than we could accommodate within the, this type of intervention. And so it's a career development award. It's not a grant where you have a stable of therapists that you can deploy. It's basically it funded myself. It funded a project coordinator and a lot of different training activities and some research. So we wanted to design a, a small manageable intervention that we could accomplish, uh, a caseload that I could manage over the years of the, of the study. So we decided we would focus on, similar to some of the work we'd done, we were going to do six sessions, once a week for six weeks. And the focus was to try to figure out, can we really refine this one framework, this activity planning framework, and can we use it to address different types of challenges and different sources of disability? OK, so this is the consort diagram that really talks about feasibility. How many people? Um, you can see coming off to the left, we had 12 people enroll in the pre-pilot. We ended up randomizing 59 people. It actually was a pretty easy study to recruit for. Uh, thank you, Daphne Ellis. Thank you, Ingrid Svensborn and Sherry McCleary. Um, actually working with all the providers. Thank you, all the providers finding people. Um, it, it was one of the easier studies we've done to recruit people. Um, we randomized 59. 29 went on the left to usual care. 30 went to try the intervention. And you can see for the control group, we had pretty good retention. 97% did the baseline. Even by the end, 90% of the people did all the study activities on the control group side. We enrolled 30. Uh, we completed the intervention with 90% of them. And uh, we had 87 do the second week assessment and 80% 
do the third. So that was pretty good feasibility, pretty good enrollment and retainment. We didn't lose a lot of people. That was encouraging. Um, this tells you a little bit about where I went. <laughs> so uh, the people in, let's see, the paler colors are the control group. The darker colors are the people I drove to the intervention. So I was all over lovely New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh, the clear people are the first 12 pilot people. And there's some overlap there. It's not one circle for every person. Uh, but what you can tell is everything in green is pretty rural or um, it's the red, the yellowish parts are urban or suburban. So you can see this was pretty over a lot of backcountry roads. Um, it makes the point that to ask all of those people to have come in for a clinic-based cancer center appointment is likely not feasible. And one woman said to me, she said, you know, if, if I had known how helpful it would have been, it was going to be I would have enrolled and come here. She's like, but I had no idea it would be that helpful. So I wouldn't have even enrolled in the study. And she only lived in Lebanon. She was just down the road. <laughs> so just saying. Um, OK, so these are the participants. Um, there were more women. Uh, and it, there were no significant differences at baseline between the groups. But you can see that um, more people were married in the control group, um, a little bit higher educated in the intervention group. Um, but no, no significant differences. Again, it's underpowered. Uh, and you can see we had different um, disease sites. Uh, the bulk of it was down in people with hematological cancers, and then breast cancer, and then a smattering of some others. OK, so the intervention, we called it health through activity. Uh, we based it on different self-regulation theories and some cognitive behavioral treatments that really talk about how do you reduce the gap between what you want to do and what you're doing. And I talked to people about, tell me a little bit about the degree to which your daily activities are enjoyable. Are they satisfying? Do they feel manageable? Do they exhaust you? Do you feel limited? Um, and, and thinking about how can you have a weekly and daily routine that's filled with health-promoting activities. And by health, we always talked about you know, promoting the health of your body, your mind, and your spirit. So things you do to keep your body in shape and energized, things you do to keep your mind sharp and focused, and then for your spirit, things you do that inspire you but that also help you calm. We asked people to think about that and think about what activities they wanted to add to their routine. And I met with them once a week for six weeks. And in the first session, I asked them to tell me a little bit about, OK, we have six weeks together. Um, you, you answered yes to this question. You told me a number um, when Ingrid did the phone calls. You have a number of activities that you said you're not satisfied or you're not doing regularly. Which of these would you like to work on? We have six weeks together. What do you want to focus on? And so it was up to them to decide how many and what activities they wanted to do. And on average, they identified about two to three activities. The lowest is one person had just worked on one activity, had one six-week goal, and um, there was one woman who had six different things she wanted to do in the next six weeks. Um, interesting, though, as an aside, they would say, oh, these are the things I want to have accomplished. I want to work on this in the next six weeks. But sometimes their weekly goals weren't directly related to that, which causes a little bit of interesting measurement challenge later. But for their six-week goals, so it ended up for the people in the intervention, there are 63 goals that they said, this is what I want to have done in the next six weeks. And in that first session, I asked them, how often are you doing this? How confident are you that you could continue to do this safely if you wanted to put the energy into it? And how important is the activity to you? And this just tells you, um, this, this was um, taken from a disability scale of these, these ratings here. But you can see that 
more than 80% of when they talked about, I want to do these activities over the next six weeks, they were talking about things that they had not been doing in the past month. They did them very rarely. Sometimes they were talking about activities that, oh, I know I've been exercising, I want to keep exercising, or I've been doing this and it's still important to me, or I've been doing it and I'm not satisfied with how it's going. But most often they were trying to make some progress on things that had fallen out of their routine and they wanted to get them back in or had never been in their routine and they wanted to get them back in. And this slide just gives you an idea of what they ended up working on. If you just focus on the left column, there were a lot of people who said, you know, I know I should be walking more, I know I should, or I used to walk, I used to walk with a friend, I can't do that now, but I want to get back to it. So they talked about walking, doing other forms of sedentary leisure, like playing the piano, like playing an instrument. Um, people who said, Again, either it's, um, I never prescribed exercise, but they said, I, I'm supposed to be doing these exercises. I haven't been doing them. I want to get back to it. Sometimes we worked on instrumental activities of daily living. So there was something they wanted to do better. They wanted to cook. They wanted to garden. They wanted to clean out something. Um, or they talked about physically demanding leisure. One woman wanted to get back to skiing or socializing or traveling or volunteering. So these were the things they're saying, I'm limited in this and I want to make some progress. And so I also then, you know, I asked them, this, this is when they're talking about their six-week goals. Every week we ask them, you know, what's getting in your way, what's making it hard. But this is what they said when they were talking about in session one, this is what I want to accomplish in six weeks. When I asked what's holding you back, why haven't you been doing it, what makes it feel hard, often, you know, it's, it's most often these things up here. They did talk about physical symptoms or impairments. I, I put these all together, pain, neuropathy, GI. Sometimes the pain was related, was in their mind related to cancer, but often they would tell me like, oh, that's an old injury. That's my knee replacement. That's my old back pain. Um, but a lot of the times it was this activity I want to do takes more energy than I have. I don't have the strength. The weather makes it impractical. They talked about this inertia of like, I've slowed down since treatment or I've slowed down because I'm in treatment and it's just hard. It's hard to get the oomph up to do anything else. Uh, they talked about lack of motivation. That sometimes was for an activity they saw as a chore, like moving more. Or, um, but sometimes it was even like, you know, I love quilting, but I'm just not, I want to get back to it, but it's, I don't seem to have the, the drive to do it the way I did. Um, lazy is their word. That's why I put it in quotes. I tried not to feed into that, but that's what people told me. Um, and then other things, I'm not sure where to start. I'm tired. I forget to do it. It's boring. So you can see that it's, it's not um, that model of pathology to impairment, to functional limitation, to this. You know, there are lots of things that make it hard to do the activities we want to do. And, and not all of them have physical, they're not all physical. Uh, so what I ask them to do each week is to write themselves an activity prescription, to set at least one goal, uh, to form an activity that they wanted to do that would promote the health of the body, mind, spirit. It was person directed in that you tell me the activity and you tell me how much you want to do it. I'm not telling you, you know, you should get your 150 minutes of exercise or you should get your 10,000 steps. This is where, where do you want to start and what do you want to do? Although we did have checks and balances in there in the sense of every time they set a goal, I would be asking them, okay, are you satisfied with the effort you put into achieving it? And are you satisfied with the outcome? Did it give you the bang and the payoff that you want? Because if you choose a very, you know, if, if I say, oh, I'll exercise two minutes a week, 
it might not get me what I want. And so it's person directed, but there was a lot of gentle encouragement to just make sure it was really getting them what they wanted. And this is the process. We use this activity planning where it always started with tell me about why you want to do this activity in the next seven days. What's your motivation so that we could really stoke it? Because sometimes, you know, it, it needed some stoking. Um, what are the obstacles that you're going to face in the next seven days when you try to do it? And sometimes if they needed more information, we do education. And then we worked a lot about setting goals. Uh, okay, so set a goal for the next seven days uh, that's going to be behavioral. It's something you do. It's going to be observable. You'll know if you did it or not. And it's going to be achievable. That's really almost the hardest part, it seems to be, to focus on something because when you haven't done it in a while and you're remembering back, you're like, oh, that should be, I should be able to do that. And a lot of the time people really need to think about it. We want to make sure you set, up, set yourself up for success because if it were easy, you'd be doing it already. You can always exceed your goal, but how can we get a nice, manageable, achievable goal that you're going to feel good about meeting? And we spend a lot of time doing action planning. So we talk about, okay, this is the activity, this is the goal, tell me who's involved, tell me when you're going to do it or when you're not going to do it so that you know how to carve it into your week, where it's going to happen, how uh, a plan B for when something gets in your way that you can see coming. Um, and that's really that part about thinking about the modifiable aspects of the activity in the environment. How can you change what you do, what you see, and what you hear when you do it so that it's either safer, more enjoyable, or you can do it. And um, then we gave them the opportunity we can practice it together. So you said you wanted to X, Y, or Z. You said you wanted to take a walk three times this week. Let's do the first one together. Um, or if there was a piece of adaptive equipment that would help you do it, I, I ordered it and brought it to them. Or do we need to modify the environment to make it easier for you to do? So that's the meat of what we did with people. Um, and I do say, I say we because there was one other therapist who was able to work with three of the patients just to demonstrate it wasn't something I could teach someone to do it. Um, in terms of education, it was mostly people got uh, information about how do you adapt activities. That was that who, what, where, when, and how. Um, some people wanted some more information about exercising. Again, the information was more about how do you think about the who, what, where, when, and how of exercising as opposed to uh, it wasn't hands-on and I wasn't prescribing exercise to anyone. It was usually them talking about exercises that had been given to them in a, in before. In terms of practice, uh, about three-quarters of the people at least once wanted to practice one of these activities, so we went for a lot of walks. I cleaned out some closets. I was in the garden with some people. Um, I had two people. One person played the piano. One played the accordion. We did some nice things together. Um, but it was really only about a third of the sessions in which they said, yes, I want to do this together. Because some of the things like volunteering or writing a letter or reading a book are not things they needed me standing over their shoulder while they did them. So, In terms of uh, the equipment or modifying the environment, there's um, some different types of equipment people needed that made it easier, like reachers or a long-handled sweeper, a magnifier so she could see her crossword puzzle better. Um, there wasn't a lot of modifying of the environment that people needed or wanted. Uh, sometimes the lighting was someone wanting to read, but when she read in bed, she'd fall asleep. She wanted a reading nook, but she had no. So we, were, we moved a chair, we moved a light, created something that she wanted that let her sit up and read and actually read without falling asleep. Putting out pan fans, using a chair in the closet. Uh, cleaned, cleaned about three closets, pantry and two closets with someone because uh, it was getting in the way of her doing her cooking and taking care of herself. So, um, And cleared off someone's craft table so she could get back to her photo albums. 
Um, so in terms of, so what happened? They had set 63 goals, I told you. They met about 62% of them. They actually exceeded the goal for nine of those. Um, it, they did more than they thought. They didn't meet 38% of their six-week goals, uh, but for 10 of those, they did partially, they made progress. So they said, oh, I'm going to be walking four times a week in six weeks. If they were walking three, they didn't meet the goal, but they were, they at least made some good progress toward it. So if you look at what they met or partially met, it's about 78% of their six-week goals that they were doing. And you remember I asked them about the frequency you're doing it, your confidence, and how important the activity is to you. And there were uh, significant increases in the frequency and the confidence that they felt like, yeah, I can keep doing this if I want to. So that was what happened in the sessions. And so then the big question was, you know, these sessions were really patient-directed and idiosyncratic. You can work on whatever you want to work on. Did it spill over and lead to improvement on the outcomes that we were looking at? We used the late life function disability inventory to look at disability, and we used the fact to look at quality of life. The disability inventory has 16 different activities that they may or may not have addressed. So, you know, the big drum roll was, is it going to, it seems like we're doing something nice in there. Is it going to spill over into the outcomes that we chose? Um, so if you look at uh, the disability measure, looks at frequency, how often are you doing it, and how limited you are. So this is the whole sample. Um, so what I'm going to show you, they're not statistically significant. We can't say that, oh, this would happen with other groups. This is what happened in this group. Um, this does actually approach. It's like P.09 out here. It's starting to diverge and starting to, it's a trend towards um, improving frequency of activity. If you look at limitations, so the intervention group is in red, so they're, you know, uh, higher scores are better, so they're feeling less limited, uh, whereas the control group is flat, so that's moving in the right direction, that's nice. Um, but if you break it down, I told you we had people with curative disease and we had people with metastatic disease, and it's probably important, they might be on different trajectories, so we said, you know, we really should just separate this and look at what's going on. Um, and so it really seems like this is, this is a little bit different. It's starting to really diverge over there with the metastatic group. Again, this is a trend. It approaches statistical significance out there. That's frequency, um, and that's what it looks like for limitations, either getting worse or a little bit flat, but the intervention group headed in the right direction. And if you look at quality of life, so there was a main effect of time, so both groups got better on average quality of life. Uh, but with a fact, a change in five points is what's thought to be a threshold of clinically meaningful change. So the average change in the intervention group was over that clinically meaningful threshold. The average change in the control group was not. It was three points. So that's a nice, nice little hint about something. If you look at what's going on here, though, it's really the curative. It's not, uh, there's not much going on with the curative people, but with the metastatic group, um, the, the control group has a flat quality of life and the intervention group is rising. And so this is hot off the presses. We have more stuff we need to look at in terms of what moderates, what explains it, what's really going on here. Um, but basically, small effects, non-significant in this uh, underpowered RCT, um, but headed consistently in the right direction, which is mildly encouraging for a low-dose intervention because um, outside of the context of cancer, in occupational therapy, similar things like this, there was an intervention that, you know, made a big difference. It lasted about nine months. And I went to a conference where they talked about um, a systematic review where it was the effects of disability 
uh, effects of physical interventions on disability often don't show up until about six months out. Um, so I think that it's encouraging that for a very low-dose six-week intervention that was idiosyncratic, there might be a signal that we're on to something here. Um, maybe we need to look at, you know, can we use these data to help us figure out who needs it more? Is it more helpful in metastatic disease? Um, I think the idea is, again, I was on the disability side of the spectrum. I think if we do comprehensive rehabilitation, that's actually laying hands on people, involves physical therapy and occupational therapy, you address the impairments and the disability, clearly that theoretically should be much more impactful. Um, and I, I hinted at the idea of, you know, we had idiosyncratic things they were working on and generic measures of disability. One of the things we need to do is to develop individualized outcome measures of disability. And there are some that are out there, but it's, we could talk, we could talk about that for hours because uh, it's uh, possible, um, but hard. Um, so in terms of where I can go from here, so that was the Career Development Award. It's like your second dissertation where you get to play with the ideas you're excited about. I definitely have a career's worth of stuff uh, that I can do in cancer rehabilitation. When we talk about it, you know, nationally, people who are passionate about cancer rehabilitation, there's really four areas where we need to make big, you know, we really need to gain some traction. And so... The four things are better understanding of the disablement process in the context of cancer and who needs rehabilitation, who's going to do fine without it. We haven't nailed that down, so I could go down that path. Um, as I, I mentioned, you know, better measures of disability and targeted and individualized measures is helpful and needed in rehabilitation. I could go down that path. Um, better referral systems and capacity for comprehensive rehabilitation providers, um, when they think to refer, sometimes don't, they say, like, I don't even know who to refer to. I don't know which one. I don't know which therapist would understand cancer. I don't want them making things worse. What, what do I do? So we need to build capacity and, and have providers think of us and, and know that they can refer to us. Um, and then, as I said, um, even if they, we get the referral, it's not necessarily something people want to do at that moment in time. And some people don't need to. But the problem sometimes is uh, if we lose ground during treatment, it can, it can, it, there's this idea of premature aging that can happen in terms of the disablement process is insidious. It sneaks up on you. You start doing less and less. People talked about inertia in the study. Um, so the idea of how do we, how do we, help people when and where they need to be helped uh, so that we're actually improving recovery. And so a lot of people are talking about it's telehealth, that's the way we need to move to, uh, which would make a lot of sense. Uh, so I'll stop there and actually not go over, which was a goal of mine. I want to thank so the participants in the study. I'm so grateful. I met so many wonderful people. I met a lot of wonderful animals and pets um, out in their homes that was very fun and exciting. I, I thank everyone from the American Cancer Society. Uh, the people here, all the mentors, the official mentors on the Career Development Award. Thank you to Mark, who had to sneak out and see a patient of his own. Peter in the back, thank you. Um, they worked on the study, referred people. Thank you, Sherry, in the back. Um, and the, peop the providers who referred, um, that's anyone who at least gave me any one patient to enroll in the study. Um, I forgot to list the gang and George and Tor back there who are guiding me with statistics and helping me learn that way. And probably more people I, 
I didn't think that I should have, but um, it's really been quite a privilege and it's stuff that I'm very passionate about. You can tell still lots that we have to learn and lots that we have to do, um, but I think it's uh, an important, exciting area. So thank you. is great. Thank you for presenting. I had a question that maybe my answer, well, maybe it might be answered by the curative versus metastatic um, grouping, but have you thought at all about the type of treatment that the participants had um, gone through before they started this process? Yeah, we need to explore it. Peter and I were talking about that. Like, yes, we, we need to, you know, play with these to try to figure out is there, is, it, is there something about the type of treatment, the type of chemotherapy, chemotherapy versus radiation, you know, is that really contributing? Is there a place we can make more ground versus not? I mean, we don't have a large sample, so we're never going to be able to say anything definitive about that with this. But the idea of a pilot study is to try to figure out, learn. The nice thing about having so many uh, very heterogeneous group in there is we can start to develop some hypotheses about that. So thank you. Yes, that's something we should look at. Um, I was just wondering how some of this work kind of ties in with the mental health of patients and depression. Just when you were kind of talking about lack of motivation, that kind of made me think of whether, you know, that was a problem for some of these. Yeah. Yeah, we actually did. We did include a measure of depressive symptoms that I haven't looked at at all yet. There were some people who did mention um, you know, in the context of that energy, you know, that's a symptom of depression is when you feel like nothing excites me anymore and nothing gets me going. Um, there were some people who mentioned that, that I've had a problem with depression in the past, I'm, I'm being treated for depression. But there are some people who said in the absence of that, they're like, oh, I'm not depressed, but I just haven't, haven't got my pep back, I haven't got my interest back. But you're right, that's definitely a piece of the picture, and we did measure depression that we'll hopefully be able to try to look at that piece of the puzzle a little bit. It's very important. Thank you for mentioning it. And part of the quality of life scale, there's an emotional well-being subscale that we could look at, too. There's functional well-being, emotional well-being, social well-being, physical well-being. You know, there's plenty to try to start to tease out, but important question. Did you work at all with um, spouses, or was it really directly with the individuals uh -huh. kind of motivating themselves to do these things, or was there any influence from a spouse to a Yeah. Yeah, sometimes the spouses were around. Um, there was one who was there all the time. Every session she sat right down, she had her own piece of paper that she was writing in. Um, sometimes we do that as part of the action plan in terms of it either kind of comes out with motivation or in the action plan in terms of do you need someone else's buy-in? Either if they're um, worried about you doing it and they're going to try to, oh, don't do that, let me do it for you. Or if they're, um, you know, sometimes that's a very good thing. There's social support that helps. Um, so I had one, you know, one wife who was like, oh, he needs to do that more. I'm so glad you're pushing him to do that more. And, you know, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I've been hearing that. Um, so sometimes we would, sometimes they'd be involved, but very rarely. Um, but sometimes during that process of figuring out motivation or figuring out your action plan, we try to tap into because that's part of the who, who, what, where, when, how. Are there people you can mobilize that support you or are there ways to get them out of your way so that you can do what you want to do? We talked about both sometimes. Uh, like I said, it was actually kind of funny though because more people in the 
uh, control group were married and less people in the intervention group. There were a lot of people who lived alone. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just had another thought based on that. Have you ever thought about connecting the participants in the study so that they can motivate each other mm. as well? Oh, I think that's brilliant. Um, I think we've thought of it maybe for other studies, but not at all with this. It wasn't. I think that's fabulous in terms of getting a, some peer support and a way to keep the momentum. Because we did sort of talk about that in lots of our different studies. Uh, people have said, like, oh, this has been nice to do this. Now you're not going to be calling me every week. And so for the people who specifically say that, we do have something to sort of be like, so who's your new person on the phone? How do you get that from people? But we've never thought to sort of have the pool of, I've got a pool for you if you want. You, this, this is a, a someone else who's drank, drank the Kool-Aid that might be um, interested in supporting. That's, that's a great idea. Thank you. Uh -huh. um, what are your thoughts on possibly trying to work with patients before they start their treatment and almost creating a little bit of that buy-in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a term for that. We call it prehabilitation, prehab, um, sweeping, sweeping the nation with um, trying to get evidence for it. And so my mom, my dad had surgery and did that too for a little cancer. I think that's a really nice idea. The, the hard thing, so yes, it could be the teachable moment where they are not feeling sick from the treatment yet where they can get some traction and get that experience of uh, the, way, the way Dr. Finley talks about is, I want you to feel what it feels like to be breathless before your surgery so that after your surgery, when you're going to be breathless, you are not frightened by that and you have that idea of like, oh, I was really breathless and it got better over the three weeks. Um, so I think it's, it's brilliant and it's a great idea and we're trying to move in that direction in many avenues. And even here in the Cancer Center, so Dr. Finley, we have a study under review where we want to do a little prehab. You know, the hard, the hard thing is, it is a time when people are worried, they're anxious, you still get those issues of, I don't need one more thing to worry about. Um, my mother was furious. When, when he told her to exercise, she was furious that, you know, she had this diagnosis and she had these conditions and that young guy was telling her that she needed to move fast enough to get out of breath, that was adding insult to injury for her. Um, but there's a long come to Jesus story of how we got around that. And, and, and now, now she's like, oh, if you, need, if you need anyone, Dr. Finley, you can call, tell them to call me and I'll tell them how that went. Uh, so, so it's, it's, I think it could be, the idea is it could be great. Um, it could cost a little bit of money. Hopefully it saves you money. It could be hard for people to be like, one more thing you want me to deal with. Hopefully telehealth could be ways to get at people to do that. But thank you. That's a great idea. Okay. Thanks.